This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. Welcome to the Madsplainers, a podcast from the Capital Times that makes sense of local issues. I'm reporter and podcast producer Natalie Yar. And I'm city and county government reporter Abby Becker. Three weeks ago, we had epidemiologist Malia Jones in the Cap Times studio to talk about the coronavirus and why she was calling for folks to cancel all their plans. That turned out to be our last day in the office as employers across the country sent workers home. A lot has changed since then, and today we've got Malia on the line to talk about it. She's an assistant scientist at UW-Madison's Applied Population Laboratory, who's developed a following for her straight talk and practical advice about this pandemic. So yes, we are recording this remotely. We've all changed our lives in many ways to adapt to this pandemic. Malia, I wanted to ask you, how have you personally adapted your life because of COVID-19? What's been going on for you? Well, I've been pretty busy (laughs) talking to state responders um, and emergency planners, as well as uh, trying to adapt my, my the regular things that I study at work. And of course, I'm at home and working from my sunroom slash exercise room slash craft room. You uh, listeners can't see me, but Abby and Natalie can see me with my yarn here in the background. I spotted that. Yep. <laughs> and I have two kids at home as well as my husband who works full time. So it's a full household here. And when you first came on our radar, it was in part because you'd written this Twitter post a few weeks ago that went viral, I guess to use the wrong word there. Last weekend, you posted (laughs) an update in which you said some of your initial assumptions had been wrong. Can you tell us what went differently than you had expected or imagined? Yeah. So I think that I made a couple of assumptions that a lot of epidemiologists made. And the main one was that, you know, we could see the data coming out of China that this was looking uh, pretty grim, like we had a new disease on our hands and that it was spreading around the world. That that became obvious sometime in February. And then, you know, by the end of February, it really looked like it was a pandemic situation and that we were all going to be facing uh, dealing with COVID-19. And it was at that point, I think just a matter of time before it came to the United States. And so it was March 5th that I wrote that. It was initially an email to my friends and family about what I saw as coming. And what I expected to happen was that the, you know, after 9-11, we had all these pandemic response plans and supply stockpile plans and all these things were put into place to deal with something like this. And I thought those systems were being activated and that we would be prepared to respond to something like a pandemic that really we, we have always known something like this would eventually happen. It's, it's kind of a part of the natural world. And um, was really disappointed a couple of weeks later when it became obvious that those, those responses were not happening. We, we didn't have those plans in place. The stockpiles had kind of been abandoned. And so we were really unprepared as a nation to respond to a pandemic. And so some of the things that I expected to go well really didn't. So our our response has been impaired by that. 
Could you specify, you know, one thing or multiple things that you expected to happen, but didn't happen? So one thing I expected to happen was that we would get some early and really strong guidance from the CDC about what to do. And I was disappointed to see that I think the CDC's response was fairly slow. And so by the time we had really strong national leadership, you know, CDC is who we would expect to get guidance from on things like it's time to issue a a shelter-in-place order. Things were were fairly well out of control in the United States. And so, you know, if we had had earlier intervention and stronger national coordination, we would have been able to stop the pandemic's spread within the United States earlier on. And we didn't see that. So that's one example. Another example is I really fully expected that the United States would be able to scale up testing very rapidly, uh, similar to what South Korea did. And we just were not. We were unable to scale up testing. In fact, we're still waiting for that really critical component of the response to come online. We need to have very widely available, free, rapid testing in order to know who has the disease. And for a variety of reasons, we, we still don't have that. So that, that was also a surprise. On a somewhat lighter note, we read that you wrote a book for children about COVID-19. <laughs> I did, yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, some a publisher of, of kids' books, a small publishing house called A Kid's Book About, reached out to me and asked me if I would write a kid's book uh, on a very short timeline, just explaining what COVID-19 is for kids and their grownups. And um, we got that turned around really quickly. It was a super fun process. And it's available as a free ebook for kids at their website. Very cool. I feel like parents are probably looking for resources to talk to their kids about this thing that's happening. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, it's a it's a great resource for parents to, to talk with their kids about it and just have some factual information about what it is we're dealing with. And um, our secret agenda was also to inform parents with some factual information about, you know, what is a virus? What is an epidemiologist? What's a pandemic? Just some of these basic new to most people vocabulary terms and the reality of what we're dealing with. And what was it like to be writing it in a way that kids could understand? It was a lot of fun, actually. Uh, a kid's book about has a really interesting process where they we live wrote it in a workshop online. And so I took a half day, a little bit more than a half day online with them. And they sort of they helped to iron out what are the main points and how can we say those points in a way that's kid friendly. And as I said, I, I have two kids, they're five and nine, and that, that's the target age range for this book, too. So it was helpful to uh, workshop it with my kids a little bit and just ask them what, what are their questions and what are, the, what are the sort of things that they still need to know and are wondering about. Interesting. We could probably do a whole episode just about what your kids want to know about this, but it's super interesting. <laughs> yeah. My kids, being the children of an epidemiologist, had questions that other kids probably wouldn't think to ask. My older son, uh, when I asked him what are the things he still wanted to know, he he didn't use these words, but he wanted to know the age-specific case fatality rate. <laughs> Very specific. Roughly, how did he put that? He said he wanted to know how many people who get it are going to die of it and what ages are they going to be. <laughs> An advanced question for a child, but yeah. makes sense given <laughs> who, uh, who his mother is. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, it's all about, you know, they hear the chatter that's going on in the household, too. So so you introduced us to this term, which we've been using, or at least I've been using quite a bit now, sharing widely this social cocooning, which is your way of saying social distancing. Has it been working? What estimates are you seeing? Yeah, so there are a ton of estimates out there right now about what's going on in the United States in terms of trying to figure out where are we in the spread of the disease across the country and in the state of Wisconsin. And they vary a little bit. You know, I think there's a good reason why why all the different models produce slightly different results. And, And that's because model just means an informed guess. And so they're really only as good as the data that we can feed into them. And we still have really limited data about how many people really have COVID-19 because of the limitations on testing. And so some of the variation that you see across the different models comes in because we have to make assumptions about what, you know, how much has social distancing reduced contact rates between people, how many people really have it in the community who haven't been tested and so on. And when you make those assumptions, you can put boundaries on them and see how much it affects your model results. But um, at some point, you know, you have to go with some reasonable assumptions and see what comes out. And so the projections do vary a little bit. You know, I think it's important to look at where there's agreement across models And there actually is a lot of agreement saying that, at least here in Wisconsin, we expect the hospitalizations to peak sometimes toward the end of this month or maybe early next month. We're also seeing some initial results in the growth rate of confirmed cases that suggest that social distancing is working. So I actually looked this morning and and just calculated the difference in the doubling time, which is one way to measure Uh, How exponential is the spread of the disease? What's the kind of multiplier that we could use to call it exponential growth? And this, just as an aside, doubling time is a really interesting idea because as it turns out, the human brain is almost incapable of understanding exponential growth, like intuiting what it means. And so if listeners want to get a feel for what exponential growth really means, you can just take out a calculator and put in the number two and then times it by two, and then times that by two, and times that by two, and see how many times you need to do that to get to a really, really big number. It's surprisingly few, right? That's what exponential growth looks like. And so that doubling time is how fast are the cases doubling? How fast are we timesing the cases by two? So back in the, you know, around March 15th-ish, the doubling time was something like three days, two and a half days. So that means every two and a half days in Wisconsin, we had twice as many cases as two and a half days previously. And now the last couple of days of data, we have a doubling time of seven or eight days. So it is slowing down. And I think that is really, really good news for Wisconsin. So I'm hearing you say that then the curve is starting to flatten. Is that Would that be another way to... To say that? Yeah, the curve is starting to flatten. And I think we can see that in the in the data that we have coming out in number of new confirmed cases over the last couple of days. It's a little, it's still early days to know how much it's flattening and whether we're actually reducing the number of cases day over day versus still just, you know, still growing, but more slowly. And that's because of some of the mechanics of, or dynamics of how the disease works. There's this lag time in, in what we get to see, right? So we see today's 
new cases that are posted at two o'clock this afternoon by DHS are going to be the test results of people who turned up in the ER two to four days ago, because it takes a couple days for the test to get back. And you don't turn up in the ER until you've had the disease for about, you know, eight to 14 days already. And so the cases that are showing up in our data today actually were infected before the shelter-in-place order was even issued. And so it just it takes, there's this lag time before we get to see any improvement in the cases that are confirmed and posted by DHS. But it's really encouraging that, that even given that lag time, we're already starting to see some slowing in the doubling time. So that seems somewhat hopeful that we are see- seeing that you know, at this time. Yeah, it is. You know, I won't, I won't say that we're doing really, really well until I see that the number of cases, the growth rate has gone negative, or we're in a decay, right? So I would want to see the number of new cases going down before I said that we're really doing well. And that's a hard, that's a high bar, because it is a very infectious disease, we really have to reduce the number of contacts that people have by quite a bit in order to get there. And I don't think we've seen that come in the data yet, but over the next week, I hope that that we will see that. And to clarify one thing, the way that you referred to people getting tested, is it still the case that we in this country pretty much only know if somebody has it because things were serious enough that they ended up in contact with a healthcare provider? I know that so many people are being told, if you're sort of sick, just don't even go to the doctor. Yeah, it's my understanding that that is still the case in Wisconsin, although uh, the number of tests that are being performed per day is going up. I mean, that's another sort of math reason why it's a little hard to interpret the data, because that's that who is being tested varies over time, too. But in general, yeah, we still don't have enough tests to test people who are not sick enough to be showing up at the hospital for assistance in general. And so... Yes, the confirmed cases is still a subset of all of the cases that are out there. Do you have sort of an estimate of when we might sort of start to see the number of new cases decline? Or is that kind of looking into a crystal ball in a way? It is a little bit looking into a crystal ball because we don't know, we don't know how effective the social distancing measures have been at reducing contacts. Some researchers are out there looking at, at a the location data from cell phones and from Twitter accounts and other location data sources that come from cell phones to figure out how much have people reduced their movements. And that's kind of a hint at how much social distancing has been able to achieve in terms of reducing the contact between people. And and from those hints, it does look promising, but we don't know how to estimate that number until we actually see the results in the in the case rate. And that'll it'll probably be another week before we really have a a solid handle on how social distancing, how the how the safer at home order has impacted the growth rate of the disease. This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. So we've been hearing that it's now too late to prevent very serious consequences in the U.S., but I'd just like to be completely sure that we're interpreting that message correctly. What does that mean about whether we should or shouldn't bother with social distancing? Well, so there are kind of two ends to this question. 
too late to prevent serious consequences is not the same thing as things could be worse, right? I mean, we have a, a huge outbreak on our hands in the United States. There, there's no denying that we will overwhelm many hospital systems, um, likely to some extent, including Wisconsin's, and certainly in places that have been slower to respond with firm social distancing policies. That said, you know, if you just let a model play out where the doubling time keeps going at two and a half days indefinitely, or you release social distancing now and let it start doubling again, uh, we would end up almost unimaginably worse shape than we actually are now. And so I think the the real question here is, what are you comparing it to? If you're going to compare what we will see over the next couple of weeks, which will be very bad news in the United States, to what if this disease never existed at all, then yeah, we're, we're facing a really serious health crisis and, and economic crisis in this country. But that's not the the right comparison because because there the disease exists right uh, we have to compare it to what would happen if we lifted social distancing measures or had never done them in the first place and I just ran some estimates I mean anyone can do this at home you know take out your calculator and do that doubling time exercise that I just suggested if you let that play out over the course of the next few months. I estimated that we would have something like 300,000 people in the ICU all at the same time in the state of Wisconsin, which is, it's about 1,500% more ICU beds than we have. So just, I mean, it's basically infinitely worse. When we last spoke, you, you strongly talked about urging schools to close. And so since then, they have, um, as well as a number of other businesses and other public locations We've also then heard calls to reopen the economy and, you know, how do we make sure we're not headed for economic collapse because of this pandemic? How do you think we should be thinking about all of these major changes to our lives? Like, what's what's the balance here? Yeah. So, again, I think it's this issue of what are you comparing to? There is no denying that this is going to be a, a and has already been a tremendous economic shock in the United States and around the world. And that's going to have some really negative consequences and probably for a long time. And I really feel for everyone who's been laid off and, and can't work because their businesses are closed and, you know, especially small business owners who it's really hard to recover from something like a, an unexpected closure. That said, I think that you know, the, the consequences of just going back to business as usual and letting the disease spread through the population are really not something that anyone is willing to accept. If you really look at what that would look like, none of us could accept that. And, and that also has economic consequences. I mean, this idea that we should just let everybody get infected and let it burn through our population would result in essentially a complete collapse of a huge sector of our economy, our healthcare system. And so, you know, the number of hospitalizations and deaths themselves have economic costs in that hypothetical scenario. And the impact on the healthcare system more generally would also have tremendous economic impact that I really think is not acceptable to anyone. And so I think that, you know, we're trying to mitigate the, the what is really a terrible situation here and, and trying to strike that balance by protecting people's lives and also 
doing what we can to protect the economy from even worse outcomes. What should we expect after the number of cases hits its peak and we start seeing this decay that you talked about, a declining number of new cases each day? Yeah, so I'm really hoping that what we see is that testing becomes available. We rely on the availability of of testing in order to identify who actually has the disease. It's not just going to disappear after you know, a couple of week, more weeks or months of social distancing, we're still going to be facing uh, COVID-19 as an ongoing problem in our society. But if we have widely available testing, then we can do this process called, called test and trace, where somebody gets the disease, they show up in the hospital very ill, and then they're immediately tested. And then epidemiologists can ask them, who, where have you been in the last couple of weeks? Who have you been in contact with? follow up with all of those contacts and isolate just those people and also test them all and see if they have the disease as well. That's our path to having only some people isolated to contain the disease on more of an ongoing basis. And we just can't do that without better availability of testing. And so, you know, right now we're in a phase where everybody has to stay at home because we can't test everyone. Hopefully we will see over the next couple of weeks or months here as the case Uh, new cases start to decline uh, and testing becomes available that will be able to roll out a more conservative approach to social distancing and have just the people who are actually exposed be isolated and prevent the spread of the disease. That feeds right into my next question for you, which was when, um, how can we get back to normal without restarting the spread? And how will we know when to start? And then, you know, is a vaccine the only answer? to all of our questions here. Well, so in the long term, a vaccine is is the answer. I mean, we really hope uh, there are already vaccine candidates under development, and, and we really hope that one of them is going to be successful on a fairly short timeline for a vaccine. And ultimately, that would be a great way of managing it, right? In the meantime, uh, we can't just all stay at home until indefinitely, until a vaccine becomes available. And so we have to take some kind of in-between approach that requires two things. And one is the testing. And the second is we need there to be few enough cases circulating that it's actually possible to trace all those contacts. Right now, there are so many in the United States that, you know, no one would have the man hours to trace them all, to trace all those contacts. And so once we get to a place where where the existing cases have kind of played themselves out and people have recovered or been hospitalized and and then recovered or died in hospital, um, then we will have fewer cases to do that tracing process on. And we'll have more sort of, you know, we'll probably still have some spots of outbreak and probably still expect some areas, you know, if there's a a second wave of outbreak, hopefully we'll be better able to contain it. But, you know, some places will probably see another shutdown temporarily while we get things under control again. Is that, I feel like I've read about these waves, right, where the curve will flatten and then maybe we can loosen restrictions. But then, as you said, there could be another outbreak, which would then spike, right, to another potential peak. So is that like what we can expect with this? Yeah, that's a very typical feature of epidemics. So we would fully expect there to be another wave, but hopefully we'll be better positioned to control it in part because there will be 
I hope fewer cases as part of that wave. And I hope also we'll be, we'll just be in a better position to know what to do, right? Well, we won't wait too long to respond. We'll have the testing and, and the tracing capabilities to deal with that. And in addition, you know, one of the things about flattening the curve that I think doesn't get quite enough play is that the more time we give ourselves before we face that, the better our treatment options are going to get. And so it, it may be that if we have another resurgence in the fall, we're much better positioned to handle those cases and treat them effectively so that they're not so uh, risky. Right now, we essentially have no treatment. There's no specific treatment for this disease. You know, doctors essentially just try and keep patients breathing and oxygenated until they recover. And it's, it's a just supportive care. And as the pandemic continues, what do you think people should be remembering? Should be remembering. You mean like our take-home lessons here? I, I guess so. Like, or like, what should be our like? What's our mindset during all of this? Right? Like, how do we continue to grapple with the fact that like we are still staying at home? We are still seeing these numbers. Um, it's a very anxious time. Yeah. It is a very anxious time. So I think that one takeaway here is that we live in a really connected global society and pandemics are part of that. This pandemic, unfortunately, took many of us by surprise to some extent and we were unprepared to face it. But I really hope that the next pandemic won't. And I hope that the next time COVID-19 threatens lives in the United States that we are more prepared to handle it, handle those outbreaks. I think those are some really important takeaways that infectious disease more generally is still a real threat to humans. You know, even in a, in a developed country in the United States, we, we face thousands of infectious disease deaths every year, even without COVID-19 on our hands. And so I hope that it does bring a little bit more attention and priority to those ongoing issues. And then, you know what, a little closer to home, I think it's in some ways, it's very heartening to see how people are coming together and being community-minded and participating as best they can in social distancing and really taking it seriously. It does look like Wisconsin is doing a pretty good job of this from the preliminary data that we have. And so that gives me a lot of hope for, for humankind in general that we're capable of, of working together on something like this. Definitely. Well, those are our questions for you. Is there anything else we didn't discuss that you think would be good to bring up or good to let people know about, whether that's a safety tip, a work from home tip, a and anything anything that comes to mind that we didn't talk about. Hmm. Let's see. Do you want to get into the morass of masks? Yes. yes. <laughs> Do it. They say yes. We want to get into the morass. <laughs> So one of the really hot topics that I am seeing uh, in the media and social media right now is is masks and and you know this idea that um, I've seen it in a number of different contexts and one version it goes like the countries where mask wearing is normative like South Korea and Singapore didn't have a major outbreak and countries like the United States and Italy where mask wearing is not normative we have this major outbreak. Another version of it is the CDC should have recommended everybody be wearing masks from the get-go. There was this MIT study that came out that showed a sneeze can travel up to 27 feet and that a mask 
anything covering your face might be an effective uh, way to prevent those droplets from traveling so far. And my take on this is that um, a couple things. One, I think it's really unfair to come after the CDC for taking the only reasonable position that they could have taken on masks. The fact is we don't have enough masks for our doctors and nurses to wear. And, you know, should we have been stockpiling them uh, as a country? Yes, we should have been. There should be billions of masks available in the United States, but they're not. And so when the CDC said that people who are in really high risk scenarios like doctors should have priority, I don't think they could have taken another reasonable position. And the other thing to say is that things are changing. You know, we learn new things. That MIT study just came out last week. So nobody knew until that study came out that that this researcher found that a sneeze can travel 27 feet. And so if it feels like things are different every day, they, they are. We are learning a new thing every day about this disease. And that is causing a lot of people some anxiety and feelings of mistrust. And I think that people really need to understand that, you know, science is working extremely fast, faster than I've ever seen scientists work. And we do learn new things every day. So things are changing. You know, the the recommendations are changing and they're going to keep changing. Saying that countries where mask wearing was normative prevented an outbreak from happening and and that was masks or the reason for that is really misplacing the cause. Singapore and South Korea were very, and Hong Kong were very successful at containing the epidemic because they implemented very early, strong social distancing recommendations, and they rolled out very widespread testing really quick. Those are the reasons that they contain the disease, right? And you can find counterexamples to the mask argument. China is also a country where mask wearing is normative, and, and they were taken by complete surprise. Of course, they were first to face COVID-19, and, and they were unable to contain it even with mask wearing. So it's really ignoring the root causes of the where the pandemic is in the world to say that it's all about masks. It really is not. It's, a, it's about the availability of testing and early preventive measures like social distancing, which is not to say that masks are not worth anything. I mean, uh, you know, it's obvious that doctors and nurses need to be wearing them to protect themselves. And we may see guidance come out that everyone should be wearing something over their face when they go out in public in the next couple of of days or weeks here. I heard that the Los Angeles mayor just instructed people to do that, but not to use the standard masks because there's too much of a shortage for frontline workers and medical professionals. Yeah. So I'm on daily conference calls about the situation with personal protective equipment here in Dane County. And the situation is not dire here yet, but it's not good. There is a shortage of the, of this equipment and there are other places in the country where, where healthcare providers are being asked to go without masks, putting their lives at risk. So it's a very dangerous situation for them. And so, yes, I think it's a very reasonable position for CDC to have taken under the circumstances. And I think that we might see guidance that people wear a bandana over their faces, too. Those are not two inconsistent positions. Definitely. Well, I think that's it from us. And we're just so appreciative you made the time to, to speak with us again. Yeah, sure thing. Thanks for listening to The Madsplainers. Got a question about a local issue? That's what we love. Email me at abecker at madison.com. Your question could become a Madsplainers episode. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to The Madsplainers on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you do your listening. You can also check out our other podcasts, including The Corner Table, all about food and drinks in Madison, and Wedge Issues, all about state politics. I'll be back next Wednesday to tell you all about the next Cap Times cover story. Until then, thanks for listening. Wash your hands and be well. This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.